This week on Footnoting History, the thrilling conclusion to our saga of the Sicilian Vespers, which sees thousands of Frenchmen dead and a war that engulfs the entire Mediterranean. Manfred of House Hohenstaufen is dead. Charles of Anjou, in the name of the papacy, has claimed Sicily and awaits coronation. Across the Ionian and Aegean seas, Michael Paleologus looks to the Latin West and waits. In Germany, Conradin, son of the last rightful king of Sicily, desires to seize his own claim to the throne. And the House of Aragon, begins to stir and look towards Sicily with its own ambitions. What's up, footnoters? It's Josh, and I'm back with our thrilling conclusion to the story of the Sicilian Vespers. What we'll see in this episode is quite a bit like the first. We'll see a lot of Mediterranean interests clash, a bunch of alliances shift, and ultimately a new power rise. We'll also get to talk a bit about the crusading project, how it shifts focus, and how the Byzantine emperor, Michael VIII Paleologus, can't even win at a game called The Byzantine Emperor Always Wins. All of the pieces are in place, so let's get started. We begin again with Conradin, son of Conrad, the last true king of Sicily. If you remember, Conradin was hanging out with his uncle, Louis of Bavaria, in Bavaria, where they do Bavarian things. After Manfred's defeat at the Battle of Benevento, many of Manfred's loyalists fled Sicily to Bavaria and to Louis's court, and slowly began to influence young Prince Conradin. I'm sure that many of them were actually shocked to find him alive at all, considering the rumors that had spread that Conradin had been long dead. But they saw in him an opportunity to seek revenge against Charles of Anjou. In 1266, Conradin called together his loyalists, and after sending letters to organize his forces in Italy, he was a Hohenstaufen after all, they all met in Augsburg to formally declare that they would be returning to Sicily in order to end Charles of Anjou. This caused significant consternation for the Pope, Clement IV. Clement, as we'll remember from last episode, was a staunch ally of Charles of Anjou and had often boasted of Charles' accomplishments. At times to remind particularly the Ghibellines that the Pope, and therefore the Guelphs, had quite the muscle to back up their rule. Clement IV quickly sent notice that anyone who joined Conradin's cause would be anathematized. This is the severest form of excommunication at the Pope's disposal, at least for individuals. In fact, the Pope went so far as to decree that anyone who sided with the Hohenstaufen prince, would lose their claim to any of their currently held goods. This had a double purpose, of course, since Clement IV had heard that Ghibelline forces had begun to rally around Conradin 
and the Pope wanted to cut them off. Soon thereafter, Conradin and his army left Bavaria and headed into Sicily, gathering military steam on their march towards the Kingdom of Sicily. Charles, who had been engaged in other battles, including against Muslims, in some crusade-style actions, turned to meet Conradin. The two met at Tagliacozzo, which is to the east of Rome itself, a little bit to the north, but mostly to the east. And it was there that the two did battle. The initial rounds went to Conradin, and it very much looked like Charles of Anjou would lose. But let's not count out Chuck just yet. After all, it's not like Charles of Anjou failed his way into dominating the Mediterranean. What saved good old Chuck was that he and some of his reserves had remained in hiding for most of the battle. But they soon found an opportunity for attack when they noticed that the bulk of Conradin's army had gone chasing after Charles's forces. And that just a small group of knights were huddled around the Hohenstaufen banners. Conradin was out in the open and wasn't all that heavily defended. So Charles ordered his contingent to charge. And, unaware that this charging force was a group of the enemy, Conradin's knights did not stand much of a chance. Conradin did manage to escape to Rome and hid among some of the Ghibelline families, but the Pope's agents were soon able to locate and apprehend him. Conradin was now in Charles's hands. It was clear to Pope Clement IV and to Charles that Conradin continued to present a danger to their hold over the Kingdom of Sicily and that something had to be done. Supposedly, we have no confirmation that the Pope said this at all, but legend has it that Clement IV made a clear, simple, but brutal argument. Goes like this. If Conradin lives, Charles dies. If Conradin dies, Charles lives. And Charles, of course, knew that Conradin had to go. There was no other choice. Both Charles and Clement IV worked within the law to make an execution possible, lest their actions provoke any further controversy. A trial was held, but the outcome was predetermined. At 16, Conradin was beheaded in public for all to see. The Hohenstaufen claim to Sicily was now over. Or was it? At this point, I think it's wise to have a bit of an interlude. Charles, at this point, was the most powerful lord in all of Europe. He commanded an incredible amount of authority over a very, very large amount of territory. He had elevated his house, the Angevins, to a Mediterranean-wide prominence that rivals any of the big names of medieval history, even Charlemagne. Though this Charles, Charles of Anjou, didn't have a good publicist like Einhard to make him immortal. 
nor did Sir Christopher Lee write an entire heavy metal album dedicated to his life like Christopher Lee did for Charlemagne. If you don't believe me, look it up. I promise you won't be disappointed. But as we know, Charles of Anjou was an ambitious man. He was not satisfied with his holdings, even with the entire kingdom of Sicily. He had this need, it seems, to expand. As famous anti-hero Walter White said in the epic series Breaking Bad, Charles was in the empire business. But he also had family business to attend to. Remember, his brother was St. Louis himself, and Louis always intended on continuing his efforts for the crusade. And after that disaster in Egypt, what we call the Seventh Crusade, Louis wanted his shot at redemption. That redemption came in the form of the so-called Eighth Crusade, launched into Tunisia after Louis had heard that the ruler of Tunis, Al-Mustansir, was ready to convert to Christianity. Louis went quickly. Charles waited, delayed on the island of Sicily, while waiting for his fleet. But much like the Seventh Crusade before it, this crusade saw disaster. Disease very quickly overwhelmed Louis's camp, and Charles arrived just in time to see his brother die. Though Charles and Louis's son Philip III were able to defeat Al-Mustansir's army twice and were able to extract a yearly tribute from the Tunisian leader, Charles's fleet was almost completely destroyed on his way back to Sicily. He even had to borrow Genoese boats. Not great for Charles of Anjou. But what Charles of Anjou wanted most in the world was to lead a crusade against Michael VIII Paleologus of Byzantium. After all, the Byzantine emperor had deposed the Latin emperor of Constantinople and was considered by many, including several popes, to be one of the arch-villains of their time. Charles had been waylaid a number of times in pursuit of this mission, including by Louis' own designs for a crusade. The Eighth Crusade, in fact. But after Louis's death, there wasn't much in terms of family obligation that could stand in Charles's way. And so the most powerful potentate in the Mediterranean world began to prepare to invade Byzantium yet again. Michael Paleologus, however, was at least as shrewd as Charles and knew that the powerful Angevin had him and the Byzantine Empire in his Angevin sights. Not only that, but Byzantium had trouble far and beyond the danger posed by Charles of Anjou. The Turks continually raided his borders, and the instability caused by these raids saw increasing unrest among Paleologus's own people. The Byzantine Empire, through Michael Paleologus, was able to stave off some Latin invasions, by Charles of Anjou in particular, by making deals. In fact, one of the deals that Paleologus cut 
was with St. Louis, Louis IX, who Paleologus convinced to talk down his brother, Charles of Anjou. From time to time, Paleologus would also try to broker peace through promising a complete capitulation to the Pope and Latin Christianity in his empire. He had tried this with Pope Clement IV, but the negotiations ended when Clement died in 1268. The emperor, Paleologus, tried to restart the talks with the Latin West when Pope Gregory X came to power, but these talks also went pretty much nowhere after the Greek patriarch, that is, the cleric in charge of the Greek church, refused to bow to Pope Gregory's theological demands. Paleologus was eventually able to patch things up, but only after Paleologus deposed the Greek patriarch and installed someone in that position who would accommodate the Pope's demands. Paleologus actually met with the Pope at the Second Council of Leon in 1274 and promised to go on a crusade to eliminate the Turks and restore Christian rule in Anatolia. And for this very brief moment, the Latin and Greek churches reunified. But it, it wouldn't last. Back in Byzantium, dissent quickly gathered against the emperor's decisions and broke out into rebellion. Paleologus brutally put down these rebellions, blinding and exiling his enemies and even cutting out their tongues. Execution for this dissent was common. The bottom line is that this union between the Latin West and the Greek East would not hold. Paleologus could not guarantee that his folks, that his people, would follow Latin rule. And if he couldn't do that, he wouldn't have the support of the Pope. And if he tried to enforce the Pope's will, his own people would kill him. He's stuck between a rock and a hard place. Well... This inability to control the Greeks and get them under the direction of the Pope in Rome, this finally gave reason for Charles to launch an attack on Byzantium. Having been authorized by the Pope Martin IV, Gregory X's successor, Charles led a fairly sizable force by land into Greek territories. The initial invasion proved unsuccessful, attempting to approach Constantinople via a land route in Albania. Greek forces intercepted Charles' men and defeated them in a very quick battle. If Charles was going to invade and take over the Byzantine Empire, he would have to attack by sea. And Charles probably would have been able to do it, had it not been for the events that unfolded back in Sicily. And this takes us to the Sicilian Vespers themselves. Since the capture and execution of Conradin, the so-called last true king of Sicily, rebellion against Charles and the French Angevins had been brewing. And of course, there were those refugees from Sicily whom Charles had displaced. They wanted revenge. Of course, to come up against a power like Charles of Anjou, these conspirators would need to find and gather enough of their own might and influence to combat him. 
and find it they did. They first found accommodation in the court of Aragon in Spain. And maybe this seems random, but let's not forget about Manfred. Remember, Manfred had married his daughter off to Peter III of Aragon when he was an infant a few decades earlier. The court was more than willing to listen to what these anti-Charles of Anjou dudes had to say. After all, they have a legitimate claim to the kingdom of Sicily via Manfred's claim to the kingdom and indeed any of the Hohenstaufen claim to Italy. Here's where things get a bit blurry and we're not sure precisely what happened. I'll try to make sure that I point out what we know for sure and where things start to fade into the imaginary. Either way, buckle up. Enter John of Prosida. John was a physician. In fact, he had been the personal physician of the Holy Roman Emperor Frederick II. He had educated Manfred and fought alongside Manfred until Manfred's death at the Battle of Benevento in 1266. And after Manfred, he had fought alongside Conradin. John of Prosida was one of the most influential refugees from Sicily who arrived at the Aragonese court. The current king of Aragon, James I, was not completely taken with John, but the young Peter III certainly listened to him, as did his wife, Constance II of Sicily, Manfred's daughter. Once James I of Aragon died and Peter III became the king, John of Prosida rose in the ranks. The king of Aragon quickly named John as Chancellor of Aragon, giving the former physician direct control of the Aragonese foreign policy. This put John in a perfect position to strike back against Charles of Anjou. We're going to drift into legend a bit here now. A lot of this information comes from Sicilian chronicles and even Sicilian oral history, so we're not entirely sure what's fact and what's fiction. John of Prosida, now with the full treasury and the foreign policy apparatus of the Aragonese court at his disposal, went about gathering allies to take on Charles of Anjou, and it wouldn't take him long to find willing partners. According to the Sicilian Chronicles, John of Prosida first went to Constantinople to meet with our buddy, our pal, Michael VIII Paleologus. As we remember from a few minutes ago, Michael was already under threat from Charles of Anjou's crusade against the Byzantines. He had motivation. John of Prosida was able to obtain Michael's promise of assistance against Charles, a healthy amount of gold, and a few letters declaring his intentions. John then traveled to Sicily itself. This is, this is pretty cool. He dressed himself like a Franciscan friar to sneak in and hide from the Angevin forces. 
and he met with some of the disaffected who had remained in Sicily under Charles's rule. They were tired of Charles and the Angevins, and they begged for relief. John of Prosida gave them Paleologus's letters and encouraged the men to write to Peter III of Aragon and encourage his support of their cause. And then, apparently, John of Prosida went and visited the Pope Nicholas III, for whom John had served as physician earlier in his life before Nicholas became Pope Nicholas. The Pope, convinced by Byzantine gold and revenge for slights committed against him by Charles of Anjou, joined the cause as well. Here, John of Prosida had also snuck in with his Franciscan friar disguise to avoid detection. But I'm going to admit that I'm really not convinced that this actually happened. There's no proof. But let's be honest, it makes a great addition to the story. After his visit with the Pope, John returned to Aragon briefly before setting out again to cement all of the deals that he had made. And in this, he was successful. He hit some roadblocks, particularly that Nicholas III had died and been replaced by a French pope, Martin IV, who was sympathetic to Charles, but the wheels had already been set in motion. By the beginning of 1282, all of the pieces were set in place. The Sicilians, tired of an absent king who seemed only interested in the island as a pass-through territory and a place from which to collect taxes, were ready to revolt. And it didn't hurt that that crafty Byzantine emperor Michael Paleologus had sent his own agents to stir up trouble there too. And most of Europe sensed that something big was about to happen. Between Charles gathering his ships in Sicily to invade Byzantium, the crown of Aragon starting to look towards Sicily and being vocal about their claim, and Sicilians quite loudly protesting the French occupation of their island. It began in the Church of the Holy Spirit in the city of Palermo on Easter Monday. As people had begun to gather in the church square for the Easter Monday vigil, some French officials joined the party. They apparently bothered some of the Sicilian women, including a married woman that a French sergeant dragged away from the group. Her husband, being close by, could not stomach this and attacked. He drew a knife and stabbed the French sergeant furiously until the man died, and when his French companions sought to avenge him, they were met with a crowd of angry and armed Sicilians who would give them no quarter. None of this group of Frenchmen survived. And right during this attack, the church bells rang out to call the faithful to Vespers, the nighttime prayer. The bell signaled the other conspirators in Palermo to attack, and attack they did. The streets quickly filled with disaffected Sicilians who wanted nothing more than to murder 
any person who seemed remotely French. They went door to door, supposedly asking those whom they encountered to say words that only Sicilians could pronounce correctly. The French accent apparently could not produce the correct pronunciations. The rebels invaded anything remotely associated with the French. Inns, taverns, houses, and they slaughtered anyone there. They spared nobody, man, woman, or child. They even took to the Franciscan and Dominican convents and put those friars to the test, slaughtering those who they deemed associated with the French. The Justicar of Palermo, a man named John of St. Remy, fled to the old royal palace in town and barricaded himself inside, along with several other Frenchmen who had managed to escape the first wave of slaughter. They eventually fled further and escaped to a castle called Vicari, where they again bunkered down. The next morning, the rebels sought to take the castle. The Justicar sought peace and offered to surrender, but someone shot him in the eye with an arrow, and then the rebels proceeded to massacre everyone inside the castle. By the end of the first night in Palermo, even before the destruction of the Castle Vicari, 2,000 Frenchmen were dead. That number would continue to rise. In the meantime, the rebels at Palermo tore down the Angevin flags in their city and declared themselves a commune, that is, an independent city-state under the protection of the Pope. Across the island to the east, the port city of Messina, where Charles had parked the fleet that he had intended to use in his invasion of Byzantium, the uprising was slow to begin. Eventually, however, Messina saw fit to join with Palermo, and not only began to slaughter Frenchmen, but also burned Charles of Anjou's fleet to the ground. Messina also declared itself a commune under the protection of the papacy. Things weren't looking good for old Chuck. But things did look good for Peter III of Aragon and Michael VIII Paleologus. The Aragonese king had now weakened his Angevin enemy and found loyalty in the Sicilian rebels. The Byzantine Empire now no longer faced an imminent evasion from Charles of Anjou. There was, for a brief moment, some calm. You know, if you ignore the several thousand Frenchmen murdered at the hands of the Sicilian rebels. Reaction to the events in Sicily was swift. The Pope, Martin IV, quickly excommunicated John of Prosida, Peter III of Aragon, and Michael Paleologus. He also refused to recognize the newly declared commune status sought by the Sicilian rebels and ordered them to recognize Charles of Anjou as their rightful king. Though he had initially stayed out of the rebels' plight for independence, with the exception of helping stoke the rebellion in the first place, Peter III of Aragon soon inserted himself into the situation in order to press for the rights of his wife, Constance II of Sicily, who again had a legal claim to the kingdom. The initial indifference to the rebels' cause turned out to be a ploy to convince the Pope that he himself had not caused the rebellion. But now, 
Peter moved his fleet into Sicily and promised the rebels that they would enjoy the privileges they once had under good King William before any of this nonsense caused by outsiders. Peter III was now directly at war with Charles of Anjou. The two kings would have it out for several months. In December of 1282, Charles of Anjou actually challenged Peter III to a one-on-one man-v-man duel. Peter wanted to continue the war, but he eventually agreed. The two were to meet at Bordeaux and have their final confrontation, but the whole thing turned out to be a whole bunch of masculine grandstanding. Both showed up, but they came at different times, which allowed them to claim that their opponent was absent, and therefore they themselves were victorious. Charles would, over the course of the next couple of years, continue to launch naval assaults against Aragon-controlled Sicily, but was turned back at every instance. He died in early January 1285, and thus the Aragonese no longer had a challenger to their claim to Sicily. The House of Aragon would control the island until 1516, when Charles V of the Habsburgs took the crown of the Holy Roman Emperor and exerted control over Germany, Spain, and most of Italy, not to mention the Spanish holdings in the Western Hemisphere. So let's take one last deep breath and soak in all that we've come across in these past two episodes. We've seen the rise and fall of powerful kings, political intrigue at just about every turn, and a series of cross-Mediterranean alliances that truly require a conspiracy theorist's brain to keep in order. It's a lot to take in. Stephen Runciman, who in the 1950s wrote a narrative history of the Sicilian Vespers, and from which I have taken most of my cues for our episode, theorizes that the Vespers demonstrated two truths about Europe. The first was that an empire like Charles of Anjou's was not fated for success. The second was that the so-called papal monarchy officially ended with the episode of the Vespers. It's hard to disagree with Runciman here, at least in terms of his conclusions about medieval empire. However, I quibble with the idea of the papal monarchy, this idea that the papacy rose to political power that rivaled all other European monarchs. I'm not sure if the papacy ever held that much political influence, even under Pope Innocent III, who is often seen as the apex of political authority. And if the papal monarchy was a thing, it ended well before the events of the Vespers. But the Vespers do tell us that European politics were incredibly messy and full of men of great egos and pride who sought to extend themselves as far as possible, whether through territory, influence, or both. And they show us the consequence of losing in such a tumultuous world. And to give some credit to Runciman on the papacy front, if the Vespers prove anything about the papacy, it is that the papacy did not have complete control of Europe, and it was just as susceptible to fallout from disastrous choices. And finally, I suppose that it tells us that the people of Sicily expected a leader who cared about their island, their lives, and their livelihood. 
Oh, and Michael VIII Paleologus kind of sucks. What an opportunistic jerk. I don't blame him that much, though. He had a tough hand to play. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Footnoting History. Don't forget to head over to footnotinghistory.com for visuals, links, and sources related to the Sicilian Vespers. Don't forget that all of our episodes are now on YouTube, complete with closed captions. If you'd like to, please go visit our channel, like our videos, and subscribe if you love it. If you'd like to interact with us, we're on Twitter as at History Footnote, or Facebook, Instagram, and Pinterest as at Footnoting History. We'd love to hear from you, and remember, best stories are always in the footnotes. Until next time.